Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of my redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. For this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, to transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all belonged to Kilion and to Mahlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house Perez, whom Tamar bore. because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The word of the Lord. As human beings, we need some way of making sense of our world. So how do we do that? Hundreds of years ago, people believed in stories about things like angels and demons, or sin and salvation, or uh, miracles and final judgment. Uh, this period of time was called the Dark Ages. The idea is that people were imprisoned in the darkness of religious superstitious belief. But then the light dawned on human civilization. In fact, it's called the Age of Enlightenment, and that was the beginning of things like uh, modern science, or rational thinking, 
or uh, political progress. The idea is that, um, that we no longer need to rely on things like myths and fairy tales and stories in order to make sense of the world. That, that once you get rid of religion and superstition, what you're left over with is reason and science and progress. And any uh, sensible, mature person, it should just be obvious for anybody to see that if they're really honestly looking at reality because we're rational people now. We no longer need stories to make sense of the world. But do you see what this is? It is a story. In fact, sociologists and philosophers call this the secularization story, of, uh, the subtraction story, that is, of modern secularism. The idea is that once you subtract religion from society, what you're left over with is science and reason and progress. And so, um, but that is a story. So how do we make sense of the world as human beings? The way that human beings make sense of the world has always been making stories, and it continues to be by means of stories, and especially by means of what we could call redemptive stories. A redemptive story is any story that follows the same basic plot line, that there was some age of innocence in the past, that now there's some problem or evil that's in the world, but we got to figure out some solution or redemption in order to bring about a new world. Why do we long for redemption, for these kinds of stories, the way we do? What is redemption, and how does it happen? We're in a series in the book of Ruth, which shows us what God is doing about a world that's falling apart, but it does so by showing us what God is doing about a poor widow named Naomi whose life had fallen apart. The big question in the book of Ruth is, how is God going to show his love in her life? So you remember each week we've been seeing this Hebrew word chesed, which is God's unstoppable love. It's a love that never gives up, never lets go, and never lets you down. And each week we've been seeing a different way that God manifests his chesed love in Naomi's life and in ours. And this week we see that God's love redeems. What does that mean? Let's ask three questions about redemption as we look at this passage. We're going to see that um, why do we need redemption? What is it? And lastly, how does it happen? Okay? What, why do we need redemption? What is it? And how does it happen? Okay? First, why do we need it? Now, let's remember the backstory once again. Naomi is a Jewish woman who's lost everything. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, and all she has left is her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite. Now, in that society, in Israel, Moabites were racial, religious, and social outsiders. But Ruth wants to help her mother-in-law, so she goes out to glean in the field during harvest and ends up meeting Boaz, a wealthy man who also happens to be a redeemer for Naomi's family. In those days, if your family lost their property, a redeemer was a relative who would buy back the property and rescue the family. So last week we saw that Ruth asks very boldly, very riskily, she asks Boaz, hey, will you perform the duties of redeemer by marrying Ruth, and we'll talk more about that in a bit, but it's all in order to rescue Naomi, to rescue Naomi's family. And Boaz says, I will do it, but there's another relative ahead of me in line, and I have to give him first rights 
of refusal. So that's where this week's story starts. Boaz comes to the other redeemer and he says, will you redeem Naomi's property? And he says, I will. But that's when Boaz springs a catch. He says, um, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire or take responsibility for Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, here's what's going on. Um, in this story, there are um, three main characters uh, throughout this story. It's Naomi, Ruth, and Elimelech. But here in this passage, we're getting reintroduced to a character that we met at the very beginning, but then he disappeared almost immediately. That's Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And um, he was in the story for the first three verses, but then he dies, he disappears until now. And even though he only appears here, not even really in name, but by reference, um, actually he does appear by name here, um, he's one of the most important characters in this story. Why? Well, it all has to do with this phrase, the name of the dead, that gets repeated over and over and over again in this passage. What does this mean? Remember, um, uh, Boaz asked this redeemer to, um, to do the duties of, of redeemer. Will he buy Naomi's property? And he says, yes, I will. But then Boaz says, it, you're also, not only are you taking responsibility for Naomi's property, you're also taking responsibility to marry the deceased man's widow in order to raise up offspring for the widow, to carry on the dead man's name. But since Naomi is too old to have children, that means that the redeemer has to marry Ruth and raise up offspring with her. That's what's going on here. This whole passage is about perpetuating the name of the dead. You know, in this story, it's easy to think, wow, all of the suspense, all of the questions, it's all about, are Ruth and Boaz going to get married? Are they going to be able to be together? Is their plan going to work? And all that romantic suspense distracts us from what's really going on in this passage. This whole thing is about perpetuating the name of the dead. Now, what does this mean? Well, in the Bible, your name was an expression of your identity. To have a name was the way that you, that, that you knew you mattered. It was a way that you knew you were somebody in this world. And of course, you realize we're all looking for that. We all need to know that we're somebody, that our lives matter in this world. So in the ancient world, your name, your identity was tied to things like family and land um, in our culture, it's tied to things like individual achievements, like career or success or um, your personal brand on social media, or increasingly in our culture, your identity is tied to things like sexuality or gender or race or political affiliation or social activism or, did I mention political affiliation? But we're all on a quest for this. As human beings, we can't live without a sense of somebodiness, somebodiness. In fact, this word was incredibly important to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. In his book, Why We Can't Wait, he, he keeps coming back to this word over and over again. He says that one of the main things the civil rights movement was doing for African Americans in this country was giving them a sense of somebodiness. We're all on a quest for this. We can't live without it. But the problem is we're also all on a constant um, battle to prove our somebodyness to the world around us. We can never just rest. 
especially in our culture, which has this narrative that says, hey, the way you get a sense of somebodyness is you look inside, you create your own identity, and then you affirm your own identity. That, by the way, that is a redemptive story. It says the problem in this world is social expectations and institutions that have traumatized and oppressed you. And the solution is to, um, is to take a deeper journey, a hero's journey into the inner depths of your soul where you, um, you look inside, you create an identity, and then you affirm that identity, and then you let that identity free to the world around you. That is a redemptive story, but the problem with that redemptive story is that we can't just affirm our own somebodyness. We are also always in a constant battle to prove our somebodyness to the world around us. So for instance, there was a documentary back in the 90s called Truth or Dare, about a tour that Madonna did back in the 90s. Um, and in the movie, she comes to Detroit, which is her hometown, and these are her people. So she's a little nervous about this. And, and in the movie, before the show, she gathers her dancers and singers around her for a prayer before the show starts. And this is what she prays. She says, Dear Lord, it seems like every time I'm standing in this circle before the show, I'm asking you for something extra special. Well, I'm begging you, please, to give me a voice to sing with this evening. This is my hometown, so I'm extra nervous. And then she says something amazing. She says, and even though it's not supposed to matter, it does matter what they think. So give me that little extra something special to show everybody here that I did make something out of my life. Amen. Now, the thing that amazes me about this is that Madonna is one of the most powerful and talented people in the world. If anybody should be free of the need to prove her somebodyness to the world around her, it should be Madonna, right? And yet, if, if, if Madonna is always on a quest for a name that is constantly just out of her reach, no matter how hard she works or how brilliantly she performs, then what about the rest of us? Our need for redemption is our need for a name, our need for a sense of somebodyness, an assurance that our lives matter and that our existence in this world is justified. But that leads to our next point. We've seen, um, first, why do we need redemption? But secondly, what is it? What is redemption? Well, let's go back to this phrase that we said is such a big deal in this passage. The goal here. In this passage, the whole thing is all about perpetuating the name of the dead. And we just saw what the Bible um, means when it talks about our name, but that's only half of our problem. What's the other half? Elimelech is dead. <laughs> he can't carry on his own name. He can't perpetuate his own name. So the goal here is not just to perpetuate the name, but to perpetuate the name of the dead. In other words, not only do we need a sense of somebodyness, one of our biggest problems, in fact, maybe our, our greatest struggle in this world is our struggle with death. And not just the death of our loved ones or even our own death, but the death that is constantly at work in the world around us. In this world, death reigns. I mean, everything's always coming to an end. Everything is, is everything that we love, everything that's fair and beautiful, everything good and true, it's always coming to an end. 
everything in this world is subject to decay and ultimate disintegration. And not only uh, is that heartbreaking to us, it also terrifies us. So think about our current climate crisis. It's causing so much anxiety in our world. Why? Because we are faced, the the ultimate disintegration of our world just got fast-tracked, and it's staring us down. The reality of us is staring us in the face. In this world, death reigns. So, for instance, there is a whole category of painting and art that's known as vanitas. Vanitas is Latin for vanity or futility. So, for example, um, here's a a painting by a Dutch artist named Adrian van Utrecht. And obviously, there's a lot going on in this painting, like the book, which represents human knowledge, or the coins, they're hard to see, which represent wealth, or this pocket watch here, which reminds us that the clock is always ticking. But obviously, the big thing that's going on here is this contrast between the skull and the paintings, that, uh, the flowers, that is. That's what really gets your attention here. Now, at first glance, those two things don't appear to have anything to do with each other because flowers represent life and vitality while a skull represents, well, death. But if you look closer at the painting, you look over here at the side and down here at the bottom, you can see that there are flowers that are falling over and that are dying. The painting is a way of saying everything in this world comes to an end. In this world, death reigns. What is redemption? Are you beginning to get a glimpse of the bigger picture here? The redemption that we long for is not just the redemption of our own names and our own personal stories. The redemption that's pictured for us in the Bible is about the redemption of this whole world from death. In fact, this is one of the main themes in the whole Bible. Um, The whole biblical storyline is about this. So for instance, in the very beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of the story, It says that God created the world. He put the first human beings in the garden. And he said to them, you may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But of course, as the story goes on, the serpent comes and tempts them saying, you're not going to die. God knows that the day you eat of that fruit, far from dying, you will actually be like God. The big temptation then and continuing today is to make a name for ourselves, not to rely on God or depend on God, but to be God, to create our own identity, to create our own sense of somebodyness apart from God. That's the big temptation then, it's the big temptation now. But think about it. If God is the ultimate creator and sustainer of life, then what happens if we actually try to detach from him? Death. That's the problem in this world. And that's the problem that we're dealing with. So spiritually speaking, we're all like Elimelech. We're all dead. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't give new life to ourselves. Our biggest problem in this world is death. So in the Bible, the biblical story, the redemptive story of the Bible is all about how God is healing the world, the biggest problem in this world of death, and bringing about a new world. And by the way, all of the other redemptive stories in our world actually find their source in the Bible. So, for instance, stories like capitalism or classical liberalism or communism or even something like therapeutic wellness culture 
like Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop or Soul Cycle, things like that. These are all stories, redemptive stories. They each take elements of the biblical story of redemption, but then it's like a mashup or a remix. It's all about human efforts at redemption, but without God. In other words, each of these stories is an alternate, alternate redemptive story. That's what's going on here, because here's the thing. As human beings, we long for redemption, not just the redemption of ourselves, but the redemption of this whole world. So if we reject the biblical story of redemption, then we're going to go on and make some kind of alternate redemptive stories for ourselves. But can we just ask the question, how's that working out for us? Friends, we can't live without some kind of story of redemption. I mean, think about our biggest problem in this world is death. And, And as much as we try to deny that that's a problem in our culture, have you ever wondered why it is that, that we struggle so much with death? Why we feel like death is such a horror in this world? Especially if you're exploring faith or spiritually curious. You know, if, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be. Death is natural. There's nothing to be frightened of. We should just accept it and get used to it. And yet, when we look in the deepest part of our psyches, we realize that death is not natural and that we are terrified of it. And all our efforts to convince ourselves otherwise are like children whistling in the dark. Our world is full of alternate redemptive stories because we can't live without some way of making sense of the world. And the way we make sense of the world is through redemptive stories. And if we reject the redemptive story of the Bible, we're going to create some other redemptive story. But all the other redemptive stories we've created, none of them are working. We need some kind of story that can actually give us hope and redemption in this world. That's what the biblical story is about. It's all about A, human efforts at redemption, B, our constant failure to redeem ourselves, but C, God's chesed commitment to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Ruth. In fact, next week when we get to the wonderful conclusion of this story, we're going to see that everything that's happening in this story, it's not only about bringing a son to Naomi and Elimelech through Ruth and Boaz. We're going to see that everything that's happening here is about bringing a king to Israel who's going to rescue them from evil and darkness and death. And even more than that, when we get to the Gospel of Matthew and you read the genealogy of Jesus and you see Ruth's name there in his genealogy, you realize that everything that's happening in the book of Ruth is all about God bringing a redeemer to this world who will rescue this world from sin, evil, suffering, and death itself. That's redemption. And that leads to our last point. We've seen why do we need redemption? Secondly, we've seen what is it? But lastly, how does it happen? How does redemption happen? Well, let's circle back to our story. What is Elimelech's most basic problem? He's dead. He, he can't carry on his own name because he's dead. And, um, and that's actually the same situation you and me find ourselves in as well. In other words, the more we try to perpetuate our own name, the more it results in the death of our name. And we see that especially in the case of this other redeemer in the story. When Boaz um, comes to the gate, which is where all the legal transactions took place in that day, he says to that redeemer, will you redeem Naomi's property? 
And the Redeemer says, I will. But remember, that's when Boaz springs the catch. And he says, all right, what that means is you're going to have to marry Ruth and raise up offspring. When he first heard the deal, will you redeem Naomi's property? He got really excited. He thought, well, I'm picking up a deal here because he thinks I'm going to have more property to pass on to my own sons. It's going to be the enhancement of my name. I'm going to make a greater name for himself. But as soon as Boaz springs the catch and lets him know what's really going on, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair or literally destroy my own inheritance. All of a sudden, he's realizing that instead of having more property to pass on to his own sons and thereby make a greater name for himself, that redeeming Naomi and having children with Ruth is actually going to be the diminishment potentially of his own name. It's going to be incredibly costly, incredibly sacrificial. That far from having more property for his own sons, if he has a son with Ruth, all this property is going to end up going to that son. It's going to be the diminishment of his own name. And he doesn't want that. But in seeking to perpetuate his own name, it actually results in the death of his own name. And we see that when Boaz first introduces um, himself to the guy. He says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, that word friend, it's actually two words in the Hebrew, and it's kind of fun to say. It's uh, polonial money. Can you say that? Poloni Elmoni. Turn aside, Poloni Elmoni. Now, all of the commentators say that um, that really is not a very good translation, friend, of that word. A much better way to translate this would be something along the lines of Mr. Such and Such or Mr. So and So. <laughs> That's not a name, right? That's a placeholder. How would you like to be referred to as? so-and-so, not so much. You would feel like you don't even exist if somebody called you that because it's not a name. Do you see what the point is? It's brilliant storytelling. The author here is telling us that in order to perpetuate his own name, because he was so concerned with his own name, this other redeemer actually lost his name. The more we try to make a name for ourselves, the more we lose our name. We need a name that will last forever. And the only way we can get that is from someone who already has a name that will last forever. Elimelech is dead. He can't redeem himself. He can't carry on his own name. But that's when Boaz, at great personal sacrifice and cost to himself, he steps in and says, I'll give you mine. Friends, right there, you see the very heartbeat of redemption because redemption always requires a substitute. Friends, spiritually speaking, we're just like Elimelech. We're dead. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't carry on our own name. We can't perpetuate our own name. We need a name that lasts forever. And the only way we can get it is if we have somebody who already has a name that lasts forever and who's willing to step in at great personal cost to themselves and say, I'll give you mine. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. You know, Boaz, in this story, when he completes the transaction at the gate, he says that everything he's done here, he's done that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. Boaz sacrificed his name. He actually risked having his own name cut off so that the name of Elimelech would never be cut off. But on the cross, Jesus didn't just risk having his name cut off. 
Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. We need a name that lasts forever. Jesus says, I'll give you mine. We need a goodness that is beyond reproach. Jesus on the cross says, I'll give you mine. And we need a life that that death can never touch. And on the cross, Jesus says, I'll give you mine. On the cross, Jesus lost his name. He lost his identity. He lost his existence in order to give it to us. And when that happened, not only is that the redemption of you and me and our own personal stories, it's the redemption of the whole world from death itself. Um, Many of you may have read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, And the very first book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Four children magically find their way into the the land of Narnia, which is ruled by Aslan the Lion. But one of the children named Edmund, um, he wants to make a name for himself. He's filled with so much scurrilous jealousy and bitterness and resentment towards his siblings that he ends up betraying them to the evil white witch. When his crime is discovered, though, he's sentenced to death because according to the deep magic of Narnia, uh, the, the blood of every traitor belongs to the, to the witch. And unless the witch has justice, then all of Narnia would be overturned and perish in fire and water. But remarkably, Aslan the lion, the king of Narnia, he steps forward and he says, take me instead, kill me instead, I'll take his place. Aslan becomes Edmund's substitute. And they go to a stone table, and there the witch slaughters Aslan. And the two girls, Lucy and Susan, they're watching from the distance, horrified. And and when the whole thing is over, they go to the stone table where Aslan's lying there dead, and they're weeping and mourning over him. And then in the exhaustion of grief, they they kind of turn around and they see the sun rising over the horizon when behind them they can hear a loud crack. And they turn back around and they see the stone table is broken in two and it's empty. And they, they start freaking out. They go, what's going on here? Is this more magic? To which a voice behind them replies, yes, it is more magic. And they turn around And there's Aslan, more glorious than he ever was before. And they say, Aslan, what's happening? We thought you were dead. And Aslan says, dear child, the the witch knew about the deep magic. But if she had looked further back before the dawn of time, she would have known that about the deeper magic, that when a willing traitor who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's place, the the table would crack and death would start working backwards. Friends, on the cross, the death of Jesus is the death of death itself. Because on the cross, Jesus broke the table and now death itself is working backwards. And one day when he comes again, everything will be made new and all of heaven and earth will be united as one and things will be new and perfect and whole and beautiful and just and good. And what does that mean for us? If you're exploring faith this morning, if you're spiritually curious, spiritually skeptical, spiritually unconvinced, wherever you might be this morning, here's my encouragement to you. And it's this, you are going to live according to some redemptive story. As human beings, we can't avoid that. So um, why not consider the true redemptive story 
from which all the other redemptive stories in this world come from and to which all the redemptive stories in this world are ultimately pointing. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, here's what this means for us. You've received a name that lasts forever. It's a name that can never be taken away from you, a sense of significance, a sense of somebodiness, and it doesn't depend on how brilliantly you perform or, for that matter, how miserably you fail. It depends on, the, on Jesus and his performance for you on the cross because on the cross, Jesus is your substitute. And that means um, that as his followers, here's what this means. Remember how Boaz, at the very end uh, of the passage, when they complete this transaction at the gate, and by the way, I'm so sorry we didn't have time to go into the whole thing with the sandal. I'm sure so many of you were wondering, what's going on with the sandal? Suffice it to say, it's an ancient way of signing a contract. But when Boaz um, says to all the people there after the transaction's completed, he says, you are witnesses, and they all say back, Yes, we are witnesses. One of the main ways we bear witness to the story of Jesus is by, is by being a vessel of that redemptive story to the world around us. And just to be really, really, really clear, that does not mean that we are called to die on a cross and save the world. Only Jesus does that. But what it does mean is that when you look around the world and you see someone without love or friendship, you say, I'll give you mine. If you see someone without food or resources, you say, I'll give you mine. If you see someone without comfort or hope, you say, I'll give you mine. And if you see someone with a redemptive story that is utterly failing them, you say, here, let me give you mine. The heartbeat of redemption is substitution. It's, I'll give you mine. And one of the main ways we do that is by bearing witness to that story, by saying, I'll give you mine to the world around us. Friends, you have received a name that lasts forever. So when the world looks at your life, one of the main ways we bear witness to that name is through our lips and through our life, that when the world sees you, the words of your lips and the the deeds of your life, that it would see you pointing to a redemptive story that points beyond yourself to the ultimate redemptive story, the author and hero of which is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Abba, we praise you this morning for the redemptive story that you are telling in this world, Lord. You began this world with life. Through our rebellion, this world is, is enveloped in death, but you are committed to bringing about life again in this world by giving us a somebody and a name that will last forever through Jesus and his work on the cross. Lord, we praise you and thank you that through Jesus, um, death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, that death itself is now working backwards and life is at work in this world. Help us, we pray, to be... Um, vessels of that story, to point to that story, Lord, in everything we say, everything we think, everything we do in this world by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going...